Ariella, thank you so much for the reading. And last week, Joseph started on a new sermon series in the Gospel of Luke, the mission of Jesus. And I just want to welcome everybody back here at the Church of Woodbine. For those of you worshiping online, we are so glad that you are here. And I'm going to open in prayer here in a few minutes, but I have a couple questions I want to ask first. And I'm going to cheat. I've got a couple of notes here because sometimes I forget my place and what I want to say. But here's the question. I've got some pictures on the, on, the, on the screen here. What is the purpose of these items that you see on the screen? Purpose of a basketball, what is it? You, just, you don't have to answer this rhetorical questions. What about the next picture? A bike. Or the next one? For those of you who are born after the year 2000, you might not know what it is. That's the TV. And the two things sticking out on top, that's the antenna. To get the three channels, ABC, CBS, and NBC. What about this next thing or things? Smartphones, right? They actually make people dumb. The next thing, a fork or is that a spork? I think it's a fork. Why do we have it? A hammer. The next thing, milk duds. Some people think it's candy, but it's actually to pull fillings out of your teeth. That's its purpose. The last thing, we haven't quite figured out the purpose of this slug. Why does it exist? What's its purpose? What's its meaning? When this new series here in the Gospel of Luke, we are talking about what is the purpose of Jesus? What was the purpose of his life? What was it? Think about it. Why did Jesus come? What is the vision of Jesus' life? I have several questions. Was it to die on the cross for our sins? Was it to reveal the Father? To do the Father's will? Was it to be an example to all of humankind? I hear so many people say, well, Jesus came to show us to be a good teacher, to be an example. Was it to birth the church? Was it all of the above and more? Think about it. What was the purpose? What is the purpose of the life of Christ? In this passage here in Luke chapter 4, and if you've closed down your your smartphones or if you've shut your Bible, go back to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 16, but I want to read something to you real quick and then we'll pray. So we're going to do a little bit of exercise. Let's stand again. I want to read this real quick. This passage here in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16, is a key passage. It's actually, Jesus quotes from Isaiah, and he sets the tone for his mission to address the spiritual restoration of people, meeting both their physical, spiritual, mental, and emotional needs. Through Jesus, the kingdom of God breaks into and it engages the whole person with the whole gospel. As a church, through the power and presence of Holy Spirit, we're invited and we're called to join Him in His mission to engage the whole person physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, socially, economically. Engage the whole person with the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this incredible day. And Jesus, we love you and we praise you and we thank you because you came in the power of Holy Spirit to preach and teach with authority, to heal the sick, 
to raise the lepers clean, to open the eyes of the blind, to open the ears of the deaf, to touch the tongues and mouths of the mute so they could speak and praise you. You came with power of Holy Spirit. But not only that, you lived as one of us. God in the flesh, as a man, perfect in every way. And you took our sin upon yourself and you died on the cross shedding your blood. You were buried and you were raised, conquering death. You came to do the will of your Father, to reveal the Father. And you came to raise up a people from every tribe, people group, nation, color, language. To be part of your family, to reconcile us back to you, Father. Touch us, convict us. Lord Jesus, give me your words that I would say only what you want and nothing else. Bring encouragement and strength, transformation by your Holy Spirit. Without you, we can do nothing. I praise you, Jesus, that you're the great shepherd. You're the good shepherd. You know every person here, not only by name, but every hair on their head. You know the thoughts of their hearts and of their minds. And I praise you that you will meet them where we all are. Thank you, Holy Spirit. And we ask these things in your precious name, Jesus. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Right here in Luke chapter 4, and I'm going to give a little bit of context to what is going on. Jesus, his mother was named what? What was his mother's name? Mary. His father's name was what? Uh, Trick question. Yahweh. No, I'm just teasing. Yeah, Joseph. His earthly father was Joseph. Joseph was a what? What was his trade? He is a carpenter. Jesus was raised as a carpenter. Being the firstborn of Joseph and Mary, he was raised as a carpenter. Where was Jesus born? Y'all didn't know you all have an exam today, right? Pop quiz. Where was Jesus born? Nazareth. And then he became a refugee. He was exiled to where? They fled to what country? Egypt. We don't know how long they lived in Egypt, but they lived in Egypt for a few years. And then they returned back to Israel. And where did they settle? Oh, Nazareth. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. They fled as refugees. To Egypt, and then they came back, and he was raised in Nazareth. Probably 20 plus years as a carpenter's son. Now, Jesus was perfect, he never sinned. And because we don't know anything about his childhood except for the time he was lost in the temple for three days, I am sure Mary and Joseph and all of Jesus' siblings are like, Praise the Lord, there's no biblical record of our family with a perfect son in there. That's God's grace upon Jesus' family. Now, I'd love to know how that was like. What would it be like to live and have a perfect older brother? Imagine. Eric and Margie, you don't have to worry about it. Sammy's not perfect, okay? Jesus was raised a carpenter in Nazareth, a tiny little town with just a few hundred people. And I'm going to paint this picture hopefully very clearly. The people of Nazareth, they knew Jesus. They had lived with Jesus. And this is really important because we're going to see how the people of Nazareth responded to Jesus. Jesus. But they knew Jesus intimately. And then if you read the first couple chapters of Luke, what happens? John the Baptist comes on the scene. And we talked a lot about that during the season of Advent. He comes upon the scene. He begins to preach and teach a, a baptism of repentance. Thousands of people, the multitudes come to hear John and they begin to wonder if John is the one. But he says, no, there's one far mightier than me whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. And Jesus comes on the scene and John baptizes Jesus, not because Jesus needs forgiveness, but because Jesus walks in humility, identifying with sinners, identifying with the humble. 
And Jesus is baptized. And we saw last week, as Joseph told us, when he's baptized, the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. And the father spoke with a loud voice. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And then it says in Luke that the spirit led Jesus out to the desert. I hate the desert, especially the spiritual, mental, physical, emotional deserts. Most of us have been in the the desert in almost all of 2020. But the Spirit many times will lead us out into the desert to reveal what's in our hearts. What type of desert are you in today? How are you responding when you're pressed down? Does Holy Spirit ooze out or does your sin nature ooze out? Jesus was in the desert for 40 days where he was where he was fasting, he was praying, and he also was tempted by the evil one. We know the story if you've read the Gospels. He overcame the temptations of Satan by trusting in his Father, living in the Spirit, and relying on God's Word. And then it says here in verse 14 of Luke chapter 4, Then Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of what? The power of the Spirit. And he began to preach and teach with authority. He began to do miracles. And it says that very quickly the multitudes came to Jesus and they brought all the sick and all the lame, the deaf, the blind, those that had been tormented with evil spirits. And it says that he healed them all. Now there was no smartphones, there was no internet, there was no TV back then, but it does say that the word of Jesus spread very quickly all throughout the region. Now Capernaum is up near the Sea of Galilee, not too far from Nazareth. We don't know how long Jesus was in Capernaum, a few days, a few weeks, a couple months, but word began to spread all throughout Israel that there was a new rabbi that spoke in no other way. He spoke with power and with authority, and even the demons have to obey him. He heals the sick. He heals the lame. Think about it. Have you ever seen a miracle? Have you ever seen a bona fide true miracle? I have, and it will blow your socks off when you do. It's almost scary. But think about it. You begin to see the lame walk and the deaf hear and the blind see. Can you imagine the word that will spread about the person that is doing those miracles? Think about it. We have to paint this picture powerfully of what is happening to Jesus. What is going on? And as word spreads, that word gets back to Nazareth. The people that knew Jesus, the people that helped raise Jesus. Think about it. Oh my gosh, Jesus, you mean the carpenter is a rabbi? Really? And miracles too? Think about it for a second. And then it says that Jesus came to Nazareth. And look what it says here in verse 16. He came to Nazareth, his hometown. Now, I don't know if you're from a little bitty hick town. I came from Jackson, Tennessee. About 50,000 people when I was growing up. But think about coming from a small town of maybe two, three hundred people. What would people think about you? What would be their opinion of you? Have you ever heard of the poppy seed syndrome? Poppy seeds, when they grow up into the fields, if a poppy seed begins to grow higher and begin to rise over the rest of the poppy seed plants in the field, it will send its vines out and it will pull it back down. So everything is what we say in Spanish, parejo, even. How many of us respond to people who begin to show up and begin to rise up and that they look or they act arrogant or like they're a know-it-all? How does everyone else respond? Eh. How do you think the people of Nazareth were responding when they found that Jesus was actually a rabbi and that miracles and signs were happening? What was their response? We know the response. 
Do you think that they were excited when Jesus came? Do you think they were happy when Jesus came? Or were they offended? We'll see. Right here in verse 16, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Again, as usual, as his custom. So that means Jesus had been doing this probably for months. As a rabbi, he entered the synagogue, where, where that, which was the central hub culturally of the town. Kind of like the way shopping malls used to be, the way churches used to be. So on the Sabbath, almost everyone would gather in the synagogue. Jesus is there and the rumors are swirling about who this Jesus is. And they know Jesus. So many probably come out of curiosity. Is this true? Is it really true that Jesus can heal? And then Jesus right here, it says in verse 16, at the end of verse 16, it says that he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written. Real quick, back during Jesus' day in synagogue worship, they would read several texts out of the Old Testament, which was their holy scriptures. The Hebrew Bible is what we would call it. And there was a prescribed reading from the book of the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy. But then the teaching rabbi could pick what passage from the prophets he would want to read from. So this is no coincidence that Jesus is reading from Isaiah. He picked it. This is a diocidencia. This is a God thing. Very intentional on Jesus' part. So whatever they read from the Old Testament law, it doesn't say here in Luke. But then Jesus, as the invited teaching rabbi, he chooses, I want to read from Isaiah 61. And back then, the teachers, the rabbis, when they read the text, they would stand and read. Maybe that's one of the reasons why we invite y'all to stand when we read. It's out of respect. It's out of honor. On a practical level, so you don't fall asleep either. Because when we sit on our rear ends for over 45 minutes, we might get tired. But it's more than anything, it's out of respect because it's God's word. But then the rabbi would then sit to teach. And so Jesus reads this text right here. It's Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 2a. But look at what Jesus says. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach Good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, real quickly, open your Bibles to Isaiah 61. Keep your thumb there in Luke. I don't know how you can do your thumb with your smartphone, but Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. There's something I want to draw your attention to very quickly, and then we're going to dive into this verse and a half. Here in Isaiah 61, verse 1, look at what it says here. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. If you look back in Luke, Jesus stops right there. What's the last part of verse 2 here in Isaiah? He says, it says this, And the day of our God's vengeance to comfort all who mourn. Jesus does not read that short little part of the second half of verse 2. Why? 
Well, this passage right here in Isaiah 61, it is one of the greatest messianic passages in all of the Old Testament. There is much debate about who is the I, the first person that this is talking about. But most theologians say, no, it's the Messiah talking. And we know that because Jesus affirms it right here in Luke chapter 4. But Jesus reads verse 1, he reads the first half of verse 2, but then he stops here in Luke chapter 4. He doesn't read that last half because the last half of verse 2 of Isaiah 61 is about his second coming. It's the day of judgment. It's when he returns and he makes all things new and all things right. It's when he calls everyone to account for what we've done. And it does bring great comfort to those who are part of Jesus' kingdom. Because the day of the Lord, it's a day of vengeance, it's a day of wrath, it's a day of judgment. And woe to those who do not believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Because on their own integrity and their own righteousness and their own holiness, they will have to give an account. And scripture is very clear, no one is righteous, no one is holy. And the way we see in Jesus' teaching, he will separate the sheep from the goats. But to those who love Jesus and who have suffered for his name, his day when he returns and all of us have to stand account before him. For those of us in Christ, we're already clean. And God's not going to roll out this huge scroll and go over with you, Todd or Angela or me or Rebecca or anybody else. Well, let me tell you first all the bad things you did and then I might let you in. Absolutely not. The payment and punishment of our sin was nailed on the cross 2000 years ago. There's no more condemnation for those in Christ. And I need to take a week off of preaching every time, right? But we need to think about that judgment for those of us who love Jesus is a great and glorious day. It brings great comfort because God is going to make all things new and all things right. But Jesus intentionally stops right there halfway through verse 2. Because right now in this time from the time Jesus showed up to when he comes back is... The year of the favor of the Lord. God is patient in his return because he desires for all men and women to be saved. Even in the early church, Peter wrote about it because the non-Christians would criticize the Christians. Where's your God and where's your Jesus? He said he's going to return. Where is he? And Peter says he waits and he's patient because he desires all to be saved. That is why he tarries. Today is the day of salvation, the day of repentance. Watching Micah get baptized, his baptism didn't save him. It's symbolic of the salvation that Jesus already showered upon Micah. So so Jesus dives into this verse, which is very, very messianic. And think about this. We're going to meditate on it just for a few minutes very quickly. The spirit of the Lord is on Jesus. Trail, thanks for your words during the prayer time. There is an elephant in the room about all that is going on. And what happened last week, it's almost like it's a culmination of 2020. And I praise the Lord that our King is Jesus. He was led by the Spirit. He was filled by the Spirit. Everything he did was in the power and the presence of Holy Spirit. And he has given us his Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, which is Holy Spirit in us for those who believe. And I thought, do I say anything about this past week and all that went on? Yes. I want all of us to focus and fix our eyes on Jesus The line of the tribe of Judah is greater than any donkey or elephant in the room. 
And he is our king and he is our Lord. He was filled by the Holy Spirit. He was led by the Holy Spirit. He's given us his Holy Spirit. And look at what is declared here. He preaches good news to the poor. He is the one. The good news is the gospel. And that is Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. He is the one who preaches the good news to the poor. Is that poor physically? Is that poor spiritually? Is that poor mentally? Is that poor emotionally? Yes. He is the one who preaches and he preaches it through his church. The question is, can the world see Jesus in his church? He is the one who's been sent to proclaim release to the captives. He is the one who sets the captives free. He is the one who sets us free from sin, from death, from habitual sin, from strife, from addictions. He is the one who sets us free from the clutches of the evil one. It's Jesus. He is the one who does it. He is the one who who brings recovery of sight to the blind. Again, the question, is it physical blindness? Is it spiritual blindness? Is it emotional blindness? Is it mental blindness? And the answer is yes. In every way. He is the one who opens our eyes to understand the truth of Scripture. If you have a dear friend, relative, co-worker who seems so hard-headed to the truths of the gospel, as we were challenged earlier with prayer, prayer, it is only by the power and presence of Holy Spirit that can bring conviction of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Jesus is one who sets free the oppressed. He is the one who does it. Jesus proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. He is the one who does it. This passage here was very messianic. Those, the Jewish people knew that this was a messianic. That means a Messiah passage. Jesus reads it and then he sits down and here in verse 20, he then rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. It says that the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. Why? What's he going to say? What's he going to do? Is he going to heal? How's he going to teach? Because they've heard all the rumors for weeks that this Jesus taught with authority and power, unlike any other rabbi that's ever been around. And he was healing. Will he do it here? Oh my gosh. And then look at here, verse 21. He began by saying to them today, As you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. Jesus is declaring himself as Messiah right here. Now that's blasphemy blasphemy for a good Jew. Verse 22, and this is the key. And Luke will begin to unpack this a whole lot, unlike Mark and Matthew. But here in verse 22, it can be kind of confusing. They were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. You see, we have to remember that the Gospels are just a summary that's going on. And I have to imagine that after Jesus read this passage from Isaiah, he began to teach and preach on it. And at some point in time, at the beginning or at the end or in the middle or maybe several times, he said, today this passage is fulfilled in your hearing. And so as the people, as they listen to Jesus preach and as they listen to him teach, they're amazed. Oh, my goodness, this this is Jesus. We've known Jesus since he was just this tall. We knew Jesus when he went through puberty and he had big buck teeth and he wore glasses and he had big feet and he was awkward and he was clumsy. We knew Jesus when he cut his finger almost off when he was trying to help his dad as a carpenter. They knew this Jesus. 
And as they hear him teach and as they hear him preach, they stand amazed. Oh, my gosh, we had no idea. So all their eyes are fixed on him. And I want to make great of who Jesus is because I'm afraid Woodbine. I'm afraid that we have lost our vision this past year with all that we've gone through. That our eyes have been diverted from focusing on King Jesus and loving and following him. We're commanded in Hebrews 12 to fix our eyes upon Jesus and to throw off everything. Say everything. Oh, half of you guys are sleeping. Everything. You are online. Say everything. Let's hear you. Everything. The sin that so easily entangles, plus everything else that so entangles. And run with great perseverance the race set out for us, which is a love relationship with Jesus. And as Jesus begins to expound on who he is and his mission, what does it say at the end of verse 22? Yet they said, isn't this Joseph's wife? They were offended. If you turn over to Mark chapter 6, Mark is right before Luke. Mark chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. This is the same story when Jesus is rejected at Nazareth. Here in verse 5, Mark 6, verse 5, and it should be on the screen. It says, he was not able to do a miracle there in Nazareth, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Think about that. Jesus could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on just a few sick people and heal them. I would take that. Do you truly believe that Jesus is a miracle maker? Do you truly believe that Jesus is a miracle maker? Physically, spiritually, emotionally, socially, nationally. That he still walks on water and still changes water to wine. He still raises up those who are dead. Do we believe it? Or are we like the people of Nazareth? And he was amazed at their unbelief. Here back in Luke chapter 4. Jesus then, he quotes that famous passage, you know, that a prophet is welcome in his hometown, is welcome everywhere else except in his hometown. He shares this proverb about a doctor, heal yourself. The people in Nazareth began to demand, hey, what we heard that you did in Capernaum, we want you to do here. And if you do, then we will believe. For too many of us, we refuse or we won't believe until we see. But the reality is, in order to see, you must believe. And then Jesus shares two stories from the Old Testament where both Elijah and Elisha, the two greatest prophets of the Old Testament, did amazing miracles With two Gentiles, who for the Jewish people back then were considered dogs and unworthy to be part of God's kingdom and family. And Jesus so offended the people of Nazareth, his own people, that they drug him out of town. It says right here in verse 28, when they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged, fury. And we've seen a lot of that on TV this past year. They got up, they drove him out of town. They brought him to the edge of the hill that the town was built on, intending to throw him off the cliff. Think about it. 
They were so angry and so enraged as a mob that they drugged Jesus out and they were getting ready to throw him off the cliff. And then Luke says, but he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. What does it mean for us? Jesus is the one that brings hope, life, healing to the poor, to the brokenhearted, to those in captivity. He's the one that opens eyes and ears. He's the one that opens minds and hearts. He is the one that restores lives and relationships and families and nations. It's Jesus. And there's a whole lot that I'm going to just jump because I want to close with this. But I will say this. When Jesus preached and when he taught, and this will, this will be a slide, Hunter and Chris, throughout the end of all of the Gospels, there were only five times when Jesus met a physical need without ever sharing and speaking, teaching truth. Five times. There are 58 stories in the Gospels where Jesus taught and preached and he shared, but he didn't meet any physical need. And then there's 99 times in the four Gospels where Jesus preached and he taught and he shared the good news of the Gospel and he also met a physical need. You see, too many churches fall off of one side of the saddle or the other side. They'll completely and utterly focus on meeting people's physical needs and social justice and liberation theology. And they only focus on the physical. But they never preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is divisive. Because Jesus himself said that he came to bring a sword and he'll divide family two against three, three against two. And said the world will hate us because of Christ. And so for many quote-unquote Christians and churches, they'll just focus on meeting physical needs, but they, w- they refuse to preach the truth. Other churches fall on the right side of the gospel, or left side of the, of the saddle, sorry, or the left side, right side, front, back side. And they preach and they teach and they preach and they teach and they preach and they teach. But many times it can come across as arrogant or self-righteous. And they refuse to get down into the dirt and the yuck of people's lives and pain and the challenges and difficulties of life. They refuse to do so because it's easier to pontificate than it is to actually serve and to give your life as a humble servant to others and to walk as Jesus walked, to talk as Jesus talked. We live in a day and age now, brothers and sisters, where our actions as a church Speak too loudly where people can't hear the truth of the gospel. It's been said, people have to see the gospel before they hear it. And so my question for me, for me, for you, is this. Can they see Jesus in your life? Can they see Jesus in your actions? Can they see Jesus in your attitude? So in closing, there's a little bitty blue sign on our chapel wall. And let's stand, and I want to ask the worship team to come up. There's a little bitty blue sign, and I'm being a little sarcastic right now, on our chapel wall, and it's our mission statement, engaging the whole person with the whole gospel of Jesus Christ, anywhere, anytime, with anybody. My questions are this. My first one is this, and we'll just start with 
each one of us ourselves. Are you engaging your whole person with the whole gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you allowing the whole gospel of Jesus to engage you? The second question is, are you allowing Jesus to bring healing to your broken heart? There are some of us here today that are carrying heavy, heavy burdens. We are brokenhearted. Are you giving that broken heart to Jesus, allowing him to bring healing? Are you allowing Jesus to set you free from the sin, the attitudes, and strongholds of your life? Trevor, you can go ahead and start playing, if you don't mind. Are you allowing Jesus to open your eyes to the areas, the areas of blindness in your life? Are you truly poor and hungry in spirit? Allowing Jesus to fill you with his presence. Because those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. And do you walk and live every day in the favor of the Lord? We're going to close with this last song. And if you need prayer, want prayer, a couple of us will be out in the foyer. And then after this song, we've got something very important and special we're going to do. So let's worship.